Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one of a kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. Michael, have you got a minute? It was carnage in Catalonia. The heat was definitely on, but not for Red Bull. The bad luck has balanced out. We've got a real title fight on our hands. It's lights out and away we go. And it's a fairly even start. Charles Leclerc and Max Verstappen. But Verstappen is now coming back. And Leclerc moves over. Carlos Sainz has already been passed. George Russell gets tagged, but manages to stay on the track. And are now coming round the outside and making contact. It's Kevin Magnussen. And Magnussen goes off to the gravel. Lewis Hamilton survives, but has he got damage? Lewis is rambling. He knew what he was doing. And into the gravel goes Carlos Sainz. And into the gravel goes Max Verstappen. Now passed by Russell and his teammate Perez. DRS activated. Extra pace. Into turn one. Max Verstappen. Is he past George Russell? George Russell squeezes through. On the inside, Verstappen tries to fight him back. Now into turn three. Russell ahead by half a car length. Verstappen leaves the track. Russell still ahead. Okay, you want a different strategy to Max if he's quicker. That's very unfair, but okay. Hamilton now fancies his chances to go around the outside at turn three and does so. Hamilton moves up the fifth. Carlos Sainz moves up into fourth place. So we do as much lift and coast as possible. This is a DNF risk. The celebrations, though, will very much be welcomed by Max Verstappen and Red Bull as Verstappen wins the Spanish Grand Prix. Hello, I'm Shannon Mabry, your host of the Race Directors podcast, and I'm joined by the soon-to-be blue-flagged backmarkers, F1 journalist and roving reporter, Ed Spencer, and our very own, now permanent, Nico Hulkenberg, Joe Spagnoli. The mysterious F1 Twitter menace, unpaid intern, is doing some paid interning at the moment, so he's going to be missing for a couple of weeks, but he'll be back with us very soon. So, Ed, you were actually in Spain for the Spanish Grand Prix last weekend, and you are now coming to us live from Monaco for the Monaco Grand Prix. What was your experience like in Spain? How did you enjoy it, or did you not enjoy it? I didn't really have time to really enjoy it. I was, it was very busy work, and you know, you're constantly on the go, trying to get into media sessions, trying to get things done. You don't really have time to, I would say, enjoy it, but... You know, first Grand Prix, it's, a, it's something off my bucket list. So I'm happy about that. And Joe, obviously, like myself, you were not 
in Spain last weekend. I was actually in sunny Portugal having a lovely time, but you were in miserable UK. How did you enjoy the race from the comfort of your sofa? So much spite in that question. I absolutely love it. Um, I'd say it's another successful audition for these new cars. All the way through pre-season, I was saying that this was the number one venue where they would be tested in, in the past with Spanish Grand Prix at Catalonia, it's been really difficult for cars to follow each other, split by sort of 1.8 seconds, which means even DRS trains are impossible and very difficult to get by. And while we didn't have a capital S spectacle in Catalonia this weekend, I think it was a noticeable improvement. And at least in the first half of the race, when Charles Leclerc's engine wasn't on fire, I'd say it was a pretty good afternoon for me. After that, I mean, we talked about Red Bull blowing a golden opportunity in Bahrain was nothing by comparison to what happened with Ferrari this weekend. I said before the weekend, and I still say now, that should have been a one-two for them. Now Red Bull are back in this title hunt on both fronts. And honestly, I I think I was thinking the exact same thing. It really should have been a Ferrari one-two, but once again, Carlos signs with the bad luck. I don't know who's done witchcraft on him. I don't know who he offended that has cursed him and hexed him. But he's really not having a good time still. And I was really, really, really quite devastated to see Charles have to go out, to be honest, because he was having an absolute flyer. And I was fully behind the idea of him being on the top of the podium this weekend. So that was a real shame for them. But it's definitely evened out the playing field slightly at the top. And I do feel like this fight is going to continue in the coming weeks and may even go down to the last few races, similarly to what we saw last year. But hopefully much less tense and emotional, please, because I don't think my heart can take another 2021 season sort of feeling. That was horrible. Ed, how did you feel about Ferrari's performance at the weekend? Well, they definitely had the fastest car, that's for sure. They pretty much dominated from start to finish up until the race. And unfortunately, the reliability just cost them. And, you know, it's it's very rare this season in particular, for a Ferrari to break down. They've been solid as a rock. Throughout, it's usually been Red Bull facing the issues. So, yeah, it was a huge shock not to see Charles come away with maximum points plus the fastest lap, which I'm sure he would have got if he had finished. It's definitely a reason to be concerned that Marinello, it's been three races on a trot now and they haven't won. You know, considering that they had a car that was head and shoulders above the field in Australia and also in Bahrain. It's a concern, but you know, Monaco, it's, it's a level playing field for everyone. So we should be in for an interesting race, at least, particularly if the weather forecast is what it says to do, and that is rain on race day. 80% chance of rain on Sunday, indeed. But I'm going to bring us back to Spain for a minute, because can we talk about the British Minister of Defence, George Russell, sitting on the podium in P3. Joe, did you see that coming? Because I rather didn't. Not in a month of Sundays did I see that coming. I mean, I was I was impressed enough on Saturday, actually. I know he's called Mr. Saturday, but Lewis had won the last five Grand Prix around this track. So for George to out-qualify him legitimately and buy with a sort of semi-healthy gap, that was incredible. But when the race started, it was like that Mercedes had discovered race pace for the first time. It's People say, oh, Verstappen couldn't get by because of DRS. Even so, Russell's defensive work against the world champion was nothing short of outstanding. And I, I don't understand why Red Bull didn't invert their cars quicker. 
But when you can when you combine how difficult it is to get by at this track and just how excellent George Russell's racecraft was, I've been talking about his good luck throughout this year, the times he's finished in the top five because of lucky safety cars. Luck had nothing to do with this weekend. I know Leclerc retired from the lead, but he earned every last point he got this weekend. One of the drivers of the whole weekend, for certain. Absolutely, 100% for me too. And I mean, Ed, can we talk about Checo Perez for a minute? Because I feel like this was one of the first times where we've seen him really be quite upset by his kind of second driver status. And he really, at first, wasn't too keen on inverting with Max. How did you feel about that? I think for me, it wasn't the correct decision. I think I would have let them race because Perez was doing a fantastic job on those tyres going longer and he was really sticking it to both Russell and, and Verstappen. I feel for me he was the correct winner. I think although it was a team game and I understand it, it, it for me, you know, I don't like team order in general, if I'm being honest with you. And, you know, I would have liked if we had had a, if we had Perez win on merit. You know, I don't like races being decided by team order, but at the end of the day, it's a team game and, you know, I don't think Checo's too bothered about it. He's obviously disappointed, but he has gone over it fairly quickly. So, mind you, in Formula 1, you don't have time to really dwell on things. And I can see where Red Bull were coming from in a sense of wanting to have Checo behind Max, because if George Russell is the British Minister of Defence, Checo is the Mexican Minister of Defence, that man can really, really drive in a defensive position and he's fantastic. But yeah... I feel like that was the first little kind of signs of protest that we saw from Checo. Uh, So far, he's been a really, really good teammate. And I found it quite surprising. But also, I, I, I was kind of backing him, to be honest. I was thinking, yeah, Checo, you fight for your place in this race. You go. So let's have a little bit of a chat about Sir Lewis Hamilton, because I know for a lot of people, he was driver of the day. And he did a pretty spectacular job on Sunday. Ed, how did you feel about Lewis Hamilton's performance? I thought it was pretty spectacular, to be honest. And I think the fact that he finished in fifth was actually very impressive. Um, and the car seemed to have some quite good pace. And he was doing a bit of a masterclass in overtaking. But what did you think? Yeah, Lewis really did shine in Spain. He seemed to really begin to gel with this car, which he hasn't been at nearly every race he's been at this year. And it's reasons to be cheerful. He seems to be much more relaxed, much more in a playful mood, which is what Lewis has tended to be in his past. So, yeah, reasons to be happy. Obviously, he'll be disappointed to lose P4 to Carlos in the latter stages, but I think he'll be encouraged by the fact that there is continued progress in the Mercedes camp. So, yeah, a good weekend for Mr Hamilton. And if we're going to talk about Lewis, perhaps we should talk about his good friend and former teammate Valtteri Bottas, who finished very, very nicely in sixth place and was really very much in the fight, especially in the early part of the race. I thought he was fantastic. But Joe, nice to see Bottas finishing there, I think. Nice to see him qualifying so well as well. I mean, if you're going to talk about a driver of the weekend, if not necessarily driver of the day, I think I'd have to give it to Valtteri Bottas. He has this habit of putting that car into Q3, but he was very competitive this weekend at a track where I wasn't expecting the Alfa Romeo to even get into Q3, let alone put up a good time. And then in the race, you expect a bad start. It didn't happen. You expected him to drop down the order. It didn't happen. Late on, it looked like he could be a factor in and around that top five. I 
I struggled to think of another driver this weekend, with the possible exception of Leclerc, who was better than him. However, Leclerc binned his first lap in Q3, so in terms of a faultless weekend, I think Bottas has yet again been one of the real stars of Formula 1 in 2022. We really love to see it. We really, really do. I know we've been talking a lot about the guys at the top, but let's have a little chat about some of the guys that finished outside of the points. I was quite surprised to see Pierre Gasly down in 13th. I thought it was not a good week for him. and I think in general, he's not having the most amazing of seasons. I feel like last year he was one to watch, really tenacious, always up there in kind of the, the upper upper part of the top 10, doing really, really well. And I just, I find myself not noticing him as much. This season, and I mean, 13th for Pierre Gasly really just feels very, very disappointing, to be honest. Don't you find, Ed? Well, I'm not really that surprised because he told told me on Thursday that he was still struggling to find his groove with this car, in a sense. He was still struggling to find the right balance. And it's not surprising that, you know, he's not finding it particularly easy. I don't think it helps that this is that, you know, he was on such a good run of form. In 2021, he was notching four, third, fifth places nearly every race we went. It's hard to really replicate that form in an Alfa Tauri. So it's really no surprising he's not been particularly uh, strong since. He's also got, he also had damage, I think, from a collision with, with Esteban Ocon at the start. So it really was downhill from then on in. Um, but it is a concerning lack, a concerning run of form recently, considering that his future is very uncertain and he will definitely want more from the AlphaTauri as we get deeper into the European season. So he will need, he will want results pretty fast. But you have to ask, how long will AlphaTauri continue to develop this car? It's a very good question indeed, Ed. And now I'd quite like to talk about Sebastian Vettel and Daniel Ricciardo. And the reason why I've bunched them together isn't just because they finished 11th and 12th respectively. But I saw a poll on Twitter the other day asking people who they think objectively is the better driver right now, Seb or Ricciardo. And Seb won by about 90% to 10%. Joe, do you agree? Because I I kind of do. I think Seb is driving better in a worse car and Daniel is not performing in what is a a half-decent one. And it's really funny that sort of the historical re-evaluation of Daniel Daniel Ricciardo is already happening because, of course, in 2014, it was these two against each other and Ricciardo absolutely pasted him and we're thinking, okay, maybe is Seb as good as we think he is? Maybe is Daniel Ricciardo the next star of Formula One? But since then, we have to be honest, and including that season, Daniel Ricciardo has never really had a great teammate to be measured against, even when he had Max Verstappen. That was in the early stages of his career. So I think Daniel Ricciardo's actually been quite flattered with some underperforming teammates throughout his career, particularly Kvyat and Ocon on his return to, to Renault. And now with Lando Norris, he's just getting absolutely humiliated. Lando Norris had a, had a pace delta on Ricciardo of about seven tenths a lap this weekend with tonsillitis. There's a genuine argument to say that Norris shouldn't have even been driving. And as for Sebastian Vettel, look, he's coming up against Lance Stroll, who is far from a top-class Formula One driver, but Vettel almost won two races last year. If Perez had started marginally better in Baku, Hamilton would have taken him out, Vettel goes through to win. And then in Hungary, he only lost a second place and potential win because of exclusion. I agree with how one-sided that poll is. Much though I love Daniel Ricciardo, I think it's very clear now that Seb is aeons clear. 
And I mean, Zach Brown said it himself in an interview this week, right? That, you know, Daniel's still struggling with the car and he thinks that Lando Norris is one of the best drivers in Formula One right now. And I think he's had some slack for that from the fans, especially on Twitter, as one would expect. But uh, is he wrong, though? Is he wrong? I don't think so. And I actually want to bring it back to Lewis Hamilton just for a second. We have not yet discussed his little slight tap collision incident with Kevin Magnussen early on in the race, which at the time, Kevin obviously said, uh, Lewis knew exactly what he was doing. He's rammed into me and has since retracted that statement and said, on on reflection, uh, it wasn't like that. Ed, what do you think about that whole situation? I think it was just a bit of a race incident. There was two guys going through a position in a tight corner at the start of the race, there was bound to be a, a tap to something like that. I understand why why K-Mag isn't too happy about it, but yeah, it was, it was just racing. So in the end, both guys you know, came off worse for wear because Lewis had to come in for repairs, so did Kevin. A racing incident in a sense, although you could make arguments for both of them getting a penalty. Maybe, maybe not. I don't know, depending on your side of who you support and who you don't. So, yeah. And just one last person that I would like to talk about, and that is Alex Albon, who finished 18th, but what was essentially last after, I guess, the run of luck coming from his bright red hair running out because they opened their little Albonos barbers trackside where he sprayed all of his team's hair red and lo and behold he then goes and finishes last so I think it might be time for Alex Albon to wash the red hair dye out of his hair because it's not working anymore is it chaps Joe yeah it's always it's always a worrying sign when teams engage in these like failed publicity attempts like when Alpine put L plan on the rear wing of the car and then proceeded to have a completely anonymous race weekend yeah, I mean, Albon's awful race can be explained by damage. There's, that's the only explanation for why you'd be losing so much time to Latifi. But he had a bad qualifying by his standards as well. So, yeah, not a great weekend all around, although it's not like they lost a huge amount to Aston Martin either. Very true, very true. And now it's time to take a little walk down Gossip Grid, gentlemen. Welcome to Gossip Grid, the part of the podcast where I impart unto you, dear listeners, the latest whispers flying around the F1 paddock. So Lewis Hamilton's former team boss, Ross Braun, has speculated that he categorically does not believe that the seven-time world champion is on the verge of walking away from the sport. Quite the opposite, in fact. He believes that Lewis is sacrificing races to get valuable data from the car so as to improve its performance, while his teammate George Russell follows a more conventional path, hence the appearance that George is out driving him at present. Could this be enough to put the Lewis Hamilton retirement rumours to bed? Or is Ross Braun out of the loop and overly optimistic? Time will tell. And Oscar Piastri has revealed to our very own Ed Spencer this week that he believes his chances of racing in F1 this year are, quote, very slim. With recent rumours of a driver swap flying around the paddock, Piastri was a name on everyone's lips as it was widely believed that he would be one of the drivers involved. Is it possible that he's wisely holding his cards close to his chest? Or should we be looking elsewhere for the answer to this ever-swirling rumour? That's all the gossip I have for you this week, listeners. But rest assured, my ears are always open. Joe, do you think that Ross Braun is on the money? Or do you think he's just 
waffling because I found that quite interesting. Obviously, he's left the team, but he's very much speculating on Lewis's current position. I, what do you think of that? I'd be very surprised if Ross Braun has a perceptive eye on this, a reliable eye on this. I think there's some truth to it, although it's probably not as definitive and concrete as what he's saying. Lewis is not the kind of guy to just throw away weekends. Um, Although it must be said that early in the race, he was considering retiring after that incident. And in the end, Mercedes vindicated their decision to keep him out by getting him a fifth and what could have been a fourth. But I, I think it's a case of He is data collecting because every Formula One driver is data collecting. He wants to develop the car. Yes, every driver wants to develop the car. Um, I think it's just important that George Russell gets the best possible start to his Mercedes career, hence why he's going down this more conventional path. And let's be honest, it's working very well. But Lewis is not walking away from the sport anytime soon. I highly doubt that. Because he did say that he thinks that Lewis is planning on staying until he gets his eighth world championship how feasible that will be in the coming months and years remains to be seen. But what do you think, Ed? I think he will call it quits when he just doesn't enjoy it anymore. That's drivers decide to, to call it there when they when they don't actually enjoy their job. So I think when Lewis decides, you know what, I want to pack it in, that'll be the day. I, I'm not going to put any bets on yet whether he's going or not. So, I mean, Ross Bourne does have some connection to him. After all, he was his boss for one year so he knows a little bit how Lewis ticks as a driver but I think it's still too early to say. And of course you did have a chat with Oscar Piastri this week so how did that conversation go? He obviously reckons that there's a very 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 slim chance that he'll actually be driving an F1 this year and a lot of people thought that he was very much on his way in but what kind of vibes did you get from him when you spoke to him? Um, He seemed very much Oscar Piastri, like we all know from the television set. He seemed very relaxed, very calm. Uh, he talked about how he's going to be testing uh, the Alpine, I believe, next week in, at the Red Bull Ring in Austria. Um, obviously, he would probably like to be out on track, like every other driver does, but yeah, he seemed fairly okay. He, he wasn't in a bad mood. He was very talkative. Um, just uh, just asked him a few questions about what his manager, Mark Webber, was up to in terms of talking other teams, got a fairly okay answer. Um, but yeah, he seems, in a good, he seems in a good place, even if he isn't uh, behind the wheel. And we love that for him. Now, races at Monaco can be dull, but the 78-lap 1992 race was a thriller won by Ayrton Senna. The race is remembered for this duel with Britain's Nigel Mansell, It was to be Senna's fifth Monaco Grand Prix win, equaling the record set by Graham Hill. By the time the Formula One fraternity rolled in to Monaco for round six of the 1992 World Championship, the race result and the title fight looked already decided before a car had left the pits. Nigel Mansell had won the first five races of the season in dominating fashion, and coming into Monte Carlo, he looked destined to end his hoodoo around the tricky circuit. Better still, Mansell's chief adversary, Ayrton Senna, had only managed a pair of third places in the opening five races, putting the then reigning world champion 42 points behind the Brit going into the weekend. Qualifying hadn't given Senna much confidence either. So Mansell and Patrese, the two Williams, then the McLaren of Senna, fourth on the grid, Jean Alesi, then Berger's McLaren, fifth with Schumacher, a notable sixth position ahead of his teammate. There was deep joy for the little Andrea Moser team, 
as its lead driver Roberto Moreno had qualified for the team's first Grand Prix, just pipping Eric van der Poel for the last spot on the grid by 0.086 of a second. Mansell gets away, Patrese gets in front of Senna, stays in front of Senna, Senna sprinting through and going up into second position ahead of Ricardo Patrese. After one lap of racing, the field was reduced to 23 as Pierluigi Martini crashed out on the run down to Portier, whilst Gianni Morbidelli and Carl Wendinger suffered gearbox problems, ending their days early. Olivier Guillard was next to go out on lap 4 for transmission failure, while Stefano Modena crashed out at Casino Square on lap 6. Italian interest in the race continued to dwindle on lap 9 as Gabriele Tarquini went out with an engine problem, with Andrea De Cesaris joining his countrymen on the sidelines as he also ends his day on lap 9 with yet another gearbox failure. Moreno's fairy tale run to 19th spluttered to a halt on lap 11 after his Judd V10 had cried enough, reducing the field to 18. Up at the front, Mansell led Senna by over 6 tenths, with Patrese stuck in third ahead of Alesi, who was now falling into the clutches of the hard-charging Michael Schumacher. On lap 12, Schumacher saw a small, albeit tight, gap and attacked Alesi into Lowe's dragging the Frenchman around the corner and damaging the Ferrari's radiator in the process. However, both drivers managed to continue on their way for the time being. Johnny Herbert's race was run on lap 17 after backing into the wall at the Rascasse, with Mauricio Guzman capping off Jordan's dire Monaco weekend with a gearbox failure. Alesi's great drive ended on a whimper as his Ferrari V12 set a Riva Dirtje on the run down to the Nouvelle Chicane, with Mika Hakkinen and Gerhard Berger joining a now rather large group of drivers who were now enjoying an early bath courtesy of gearbox problems. The race then settled down into a procession of some sorts. Mansell continued to lead from Senna, with Patrese third and Schumacher fourth, still harrying the Italian veteran for the final spot on the podium. As for Ferrari, their day would end in spectacular fashion, as the much under fight Van Capelli locked up into the last gas, spinning him backwards into the barrier, nearly sending him upside down. And just as it seemed that the race as a competition was over, Mansell pulled into the pits with seven laps to go with a puncher, handing Senna the race lead with only a handful of laps left to run. I have referred to this race as a classic confrontation between the two top names in Formula One, Nigel Mansell and Ayrton Senna, and we have it already. Ayrton Senna, four times a winner. Nigel Mansell has never won at Monaco. The final few laps were a masterclass of defensive driving, as every attack that Mansell made was beautifully defended by Senna, who made his car as wide as he got around the twisting streets, which were now alive with excitement as a grandstand finish approached. Mansell's best efforts came to naught as Senna took his fifth Monaco victory, matching Graham Hill's record of five Monaco wins. Victory again then for Ayrton Senna, his first 10 points of the season to beat Nigel Mansell by 0.215 seconds after 78 laps. The 1992 edition of this race would be the last of which Mantle would participate in, as he would move to America the following year to race in the IndyCar series where he'd become the first man to hold the Formula One and IndyCar titles simultaneously. Commiserations to Mansell, Williams and Renault for the puncture that took the win from them. Senna would break Hill's record one year later with a sixth Monaco triumph, whilst Andrea Moda would later be banned following the Italian Grand Prix after bringing the sport into disrepute. I do love our walks down memory lane into the F1 archives with you, Ed. And maybe, just maybe, given the weather forecast for Sunday, 
we might be in for another equally exciting Grand Prix. Yeah, 30 years on, we could be having a repeat, only this time with Messrs Verstappen and and Leclerc, or even Sainz and Perez. We should be in for a good one. But uh, watching watching that race again, it was interesting to see how Senna knew exactly where Mansell was going to go and just slightly moved his car to where Nigel was going to go. And it wasn't in, it wasn't dirty, it wasn't hard, it wasn't harsh. It was just good, clean, hard racing between the pair, and that's the kind of stuff you love to watch. It's the kind of stuff that drags you into Formula One, the hard racing between the two great gladiators, one on one. Can we actually have good races in the wet anymore? Because they just put them behind safety cars now, don't they? This is very mm. true, producer Royfield. Very true indeed. Maybe. I'm just really, really glad that you chose that race in particular, though, Ed, because of all the of all the Grand Prix wins where it felt like Senna was dragging something out of the car, he was really dragging the win out of that 92 McLaren. Because, because the Williams was just so dominant, people have forgotten just what an awful Formula One car that was. Um, and like, like you say, the positioning on the track, Murray Walker's commentary of it. I mean, even I've seen most of this race. It's just unbelievable. It's it's a top 10 center win, maybe even a top five. And yeah, Shannon, just another terrible car that your favorite team has put out over the years. How dare you, Mr. Spagnoli? How dare you? But I will say probably one of the other barriers to having an interesting race, particularly in Monaco at the moment, producer Royfield is not just the fact that when it rains we go behind a safety car but also the fact that the cars are so much bigger now 30 years on and I think that that Monaco track this year is going to feel even smaller than it did previously. I I think that's totally a fair point the cars are bigger and I believe they're wider. Well gents I'm going to bring you back to the present and we're going to talk about the news of the week. I'm going to kick it off So Red Bull team principal Christian Horner has warned that as many as seven teams could be forced to miss races this season if Formula One doesn't increase the budget cap. And that's partly citing the quadrupling of freight due to inflation, so he claims, and increased energy costs. However, Damon Hill has questioned Horner's motives and is accusing him of moving the political goalposts to give his team an advantage. Joe, what do you think about Christian Horner's cheeky little comments? I come down very strongly on the side of Damon Hill. This is the Formula One equivalent of electioneering. Look, I'm sure there are budget problems, but it's also very naive to think that Liberty and Formula One won't come up with some kind of stimulus package to ensure that 70% of the grid is there at the dying end of the season. Um, look, the, the cost cap needs a bit of work to account for things like inflation, which is caused by God, God only knows how many current political factors. But yeah, I, I think this is, you can see Horner's motivations here pretty clearly. And I think it could very well just be down to the fact that they have spent perhaps the majority of their development budget and don't have any money left with which to combat any kind of inflation, whereas other teams who maybe haven't spent all of their development budget this early in the season can just simply make cuts elsewhere, particularly to that kind of budget, and accommodate the fact that freight is quadrupling, whatever else is increasing in price. So it's almost as if he showed his hand there a little bit, maybe, that they've spent way too much money on other things, and now they've got nothing left in the piggy bank. What do you think, Ed? 
It is an interesting comment from Christian, considering that he, he mentioned it as well about the cost of living in his um, post-race media session on Sunday in Barcelona, which I was in attendance. Uh, sorry, I have to casually just drop that in. You know, we talked about the cost of living, the fact that people are struggling in general, but all that. Red Bull probably have used most of their budget, but I wouldn't say they've completely spent all of it. I think every top team keeps just a little in the bank for when they need it for, let's say, a rainy day. The cost cap, obviously, for some teams was a, a reduction in their spending and to an extent. So I wouldn't be surprised if whatever they did have spare, they weren't accounting for the fact that freight would become so much more expensive and, and whatever else it is. So mm, we'll see. But yeah, I, I'm more leaning towards uh, the Damon Hill side of things, to be honest. I, I always assume I think that Christian Horner has an ulterior motive. But Joe, what's your news of the week? Well, my news of the week isn't so much news, so much as quashing conspiracy theories and alarmism about Red Bull's reliability. Every weekend we get the technical delegates report and it's basically making sure teams aren't cheating by changing different power components and all that kind of thing. And the theory that was running through the first few races is that Red Bull powertrains and specifically the the, the Red Bull RB18 was particularly unreliable. Uh, because Verstappen had lost those two second places. But what's come out this weekend, I'm not sure if this is true as of the Spanish Grand Prix or for just before it, but Red Bull have barely changed any components within Max Verstappen's car. Perez has had a few, but with the exception of the exhaust system, every single crucial part of the engine in Verstappen's car is the same as what they lined up with in Bahrain. It was just like the fuel system that cause the problems in those two retirements which you're able to replace besides that compare that to ferrari the only things that haven't been changed in the clerk's car are the energy store and the control electronics unit which are the parts that are supposed to last the longest anyway so actually contrary to what we've seen so far red bull might have more reliable components more endurance of their components than ferrari do i say that however alpha tauri's reliability from this chart is an absolute disgrace. Somehow, strangely, not surprised by that final point. But that is always worth looking at the big picture, I think. And that's a really good example of looking at the bigger picture, looking at the details and seeing what's really going on, as opposed to just speculating. So thank you for that, Joe. I feel like we've all learned something today, don't you, Ed? Absolutely. And now it's your turn, Mr. Spencer. What is your news of the week? So this is another paddock storyline i caught up with martin budkowski in the paddock on thursday and he's not really in a rush to get a job back you may remember that mr budkowski uh, was the alpine team principal uh, before being unduly uh, dismissed in the winter he was in the paddock um, on gardening leave still and he'd come from a, a holiday in spain um he's not in a rush to get a new job but he is looking around at his options so we may see martin uh, back in the paddock one day, we may not. He may decide to uh, go to SportsCast, which is rapidly booming with the amount of manufacturers that are now joining the party day by day growing. So just watch the space with Mr. Budkowski. He is seemingly looking around, but not jumping over to put his CV in the shop window. Probably enjoying some very nice time off from the sounds of it. But if he were to stay in F1, where would he go? What would seem like a good fit for him, do you think? Well, Martin is, I believe he can even be a race director if he so pleases, because he has vast amounts of technical knowledge. So, I mean, he can go anywhere if he wants. Uh, He can go and work for the FIA again. 
he can go and work for another team. I think personally he will possibly try for another team. And then if, let's say, there's nothing around that is, I would say, attractive to him, he might go and do become a race director. And I don't really blame him, if I'm being honest with you. Ferrari red is the sporting motoring racing colour of Italy. So when French team Ligier joined F1, they donned the colour blue to represent France. Based in Vichy, they were arguably one of the most successful and competitive small teams in the sport's history, made all the more impressive for doing it the French way. Boom. Yet another sports car team entering the crucible of Formula One, Vichy-based Équipe Ligier are arguably one of the most successful and competitive small teams in the sport's history, made all the more impressive for doing it the French way. Founder Guy Ligier took over the departing Matra team ahead of 1976, fielding one all-original chassis for countryman Jacques Lafitte. And interestingly for the time, Ligier didn't use the near-ubiquitous Cosworth DFV V8, but Matra's very own French V12, which made Lafitte's surprisingly competitive car sound absolutely stunning. And results soon matched the soundtrack. 1976 saw no fewer than 20 points for just the one car, but in 1977, Lafitte would take the team to the rostrum with a certified shock victory at the Swedish Grand Prix. But Watson and Schechter, well, they were to collide in the 30th lap, which released a few hungry appetites. And that is the moment when Lafitte decided to show his colours. Catching and overtaking his adversaries one by one, you might have to pinch yourself to believe it. Five laps from the finish, Lafitte was second, having overtaken Stuck, Reutemann, Maas, Depier and James Hunt. Suddenly, four laps from the end, Andretti's Lotus disappeared into the pits for a short refuelling. It was either that or run out. And so the Ligier Matra found itself in the lead. Lafitte didn't let up and won his first Grand Prix victory. An historic day for French motorsport, but no Marseillaise was played on the podium. The organisers had foreseen everything except a French victory. This early win reaffirmed not only Ligier's chassis design, but their commitment to French drivers. There were exceptions, but whether it was Lafitte in the early years, René Arnoux in the late 80s, or Eric Comas in the early 90s, Ligier tended to back their French drivers with mid- to long-term stints. On that front, though, Ligier were forced to adopt the Ford DFV ahead of 1979, although they were no longer a one-car team. The late Patrick Depailler joined Lafitte in the all-new Ligier JS11, which would quickly become a fan-favourite car. For all the hype of the Ferrari and the title-defending Lotus, it was the little French team who took the first two wins of the year in Argentina and Brazil. The man to beat at Kyalami was Jacques Lafitte. He'd won both South American races in a new Ligier designed with the help of French aerodynamicists. The JS11 was the first fruit of a new collaboration with Cosworth for engines. Previously, the Ligier had been an all-French affair, with Matra V12 power units, but Matra had withdrawn from racing. It was a benefit for Ligier, for the Ford Cosworth was more compact and better suited to a wing car design. Lafitte's back-to-back wins have proved the team had got everything right. Sadly, reliability issues scuppered this remarkable form, but both Ligiers were always on the pace, and when the F1 circus hit Harama for the race in Spain, Depailler vindicated the team's investment in a second car, scoring the final win of his career. Only the dominant Ferrari and consistent Williams would finish ahead of Ligier that year, and in 1980, with an evolutionary car from Gérard Ducarouge, they'd do one better, 
winning another two races at Zolder and Hockenheim en route to second in the World Championship. 81 heralded the return of Matra and the awesome V12s, but aside from two more wins for Lafitte, the team were beginning to fade. Breakdowns, crashes and a salvo of rotating drivers saw Ligier slump to fourth, and despite handsome sponsorship and a free engine deal with Renault, their 1980s went from unremarkable to anonymous. Brief podium spells in 93 and 94, as well as the team moving to Magny-Cours, weren't saving Ligier, and nor did the team's brief carousel of ownership. However, in their final season of 1996, and one race of uber attrition in Monaco, L'Equipe would ensure they'd never be forgotten. And Olivier Parnis for Ligier Mugen Honda, a wonderful fillet for the French team and their Japanese engine supplier, exits the Rascasse to win the 1996 Monaco Grand Prix. An incredible result. Oh, look at that for joy. Victory for Olivier Parnis and Ligier that nobody could have expected in a Monaco Grand Prix, which, as ever, was full of incident. Their latest prodigy, Lyonnais driver Olivier Panis, had already notched up two podiums for the now midfield runners, but Monaco 96 was a race that seemingly no one wanted to finish. Accident after accident peppered the Principality streets, but between the crashes, Panis's Ligier Mugen Honda was on a charge. Starting 14th, he was soon in the points, then second, and after race leader Jean Alesi pulled in to retire, Panis held on to secure the unthinkable the one win of his career at 300 to 1 odds and the ultimate swan song for the team. At the end of 96, they were sold to Alain Prost, who turned them into his own certified French team, but he'd never matched the heights of Ligier, who'd forged a unique, often overachieving identity on a crowded F1 grid, even if they never managed to win the same race twice. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, Hello Fresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. And it was quite difficult to get that into uh, a short package because unlike the other teams we've done in the past, Ligier were actually somewhat successful. I wasn't able to highlight every single 
uh, win that they had over the course of their illustrious career. They actually won twice in 1981. Um, someone on this call is actually in France and does not have access to the internet to cheat. Ed, which two Grand Prix did they win in 1981? I'm not sure. Um, I don't actually know this. I think it was Lafitte who won. It must have been Lafitte who won two. I'm going to go for a guess. Was one of them... No, it wasn't Spa because Reutemann... So it wasn't Zolder because Reutemann won that race. I'm going to say it was Silverstone 81 and Zambort. I probably am wrong. Not bad guesses, actually. Uh, Austria and Canada. Lafitte won them both. So yeah. A genuinely decent team in the classic team segment. I guarantee you this isn't going to last long. Don't mind me. I'm just busy picking myself up after I fell off my chair because you found a piece of F1 trivia that Ed didn't know off the top of his head. Uh, re- excuse me while I compose myself for a moment. And then we can move on to everyone naming their plonker of the week. <laughs> And Ed, I'm going to let you kick off with your plonker of the week. This is very easy. The people in charge of the car parking uh, catering for the Spanish Grand Prix. It was unacceptable. The fact that fans were left to bake in the heat and suffer sunstroke in 37 degree temperatures with no water, even though they bought their own. It was eventually chucked out because it was not bought from the circuit premises. The public transport was a, was a disaster. So for me... This, this plonker of the week, and I always hate doing it, I would say the, the Spanish Grand Prix organisers, an extremely disappointing affair to leave fans becoming human creme catalanas overnight. Why, Ed, is it always with you that we end up talking about the person in charge of car parking or catering or something along those lines? I feel like it's almost never a driver with you. I'm very diplomatic, that's why. Fair point, fair point. That's absolutely fine. It's your plonker of the week. You can choose whoever you want, quite frankly. Joe, who have you chosen? It's a very Spanioli pick, and I apologise in advance. I would like to single out the cinematographer for the completely pointless drone camera in Sector 3 of the race. We got a, uh, a drone footage that would, and it would do the same thing on every lap. It added absolutely nothing to the coverage that you couldn't achieve with a crane. You'd get this rubbish drone flying around and tracking the cars in Sector 3 at the same angle every lap. Now, that wouldn't be such a problem, but they had a fisheye lens on it, which made the quality look absolutely terrible. And when you combine that with a lens that, sorry, I own a camera, has absolutely no image stabilization, it was giving the people I was watching this with motion sickness. It looked terrible. The filtering was bad. Fisheyes make no sense in Formula One. It added nothing to proceedings. Burn whoever came up with this. Okay then, thank you Joe Spagnoli for that passionate take. Thank you very much. I'm going to talk about not necessarily a driver, but a team. And my plonker of the week this week is Ferrari, because I feel like they really fumbled the bag this weekend. It could have been amazing, it could have been a Ferrari 1-2, and through various factors, be it drivers, engines, components, etc., they just... They, they messed it up. They messed it up and we ended up with a Red Bull 1-2. So for me, plonker of the week is Ferrari. However, we don't necessarily have a winner, unfortunately, because we all appear to be very divided and very uh, opinionated in our plonkers of the week this week. Thank you, gentlemen. Um, so we'll call it a three-way tie between the three. That's fair enough. Unfortunately, that is all we have time for this week. So, dear listeners, I do invite you to please leave us a rating and a review on Apple iTunes. 
check out our YouTube channel. We post content over there. You can search and subscribe to us at the Race Directors Podcast on YouTube. Tell your friends, tell your mother, tell your grandmother, tell your postman about us. And if you'd like to get involved in the show, please do follow us on Twitter at race underscore directors or like us on Facebook at the Race Directors Podcast, where we'll be posting updates, thoughts, memes throughout the season and of course beyond. And please do subscribe to us on whichever platform you choose to listen to the podcast on. We appreciate your support. Looking forward to Monaco this week. Ed Spencer will be on the ground, so do give him a follow on Twitter as well if you'd like to see some live updates. And we will see you all next week. So good evening, gentlemen. Good night. Is anyone else going to sleep through Monaco? I won't. Bonsoir. A very good point. Well made, Mr. Spencer. Now, as you all know, dear listeners, we do like to time travel on this podcast and jump between past and present. So now it's time for classic tales of F1 lore with Joe Spagnoli. Ferrari red is the sporting motoring racing colour of Italy. So when the French team Liga joined F1, they donned the colour blue to represent France. It's Liga, isn't it? Is no, it Ligier. 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 Sorry. You're so <laughs> fucking Jesus Brexit, Christ. Shannon. Sorry. Oh, please tell me we can oh, release well, that we ha- separately. No, we, please we tell no, me we can release no, that. we have to cut that out. I'm going to Paris Liger. in June. They won't let me in. <laughs> Liger. Liger sounds like a cheap brand of alcohol. Oh. You buy it little at 2 a.m. in the morning. Jesus. Producer Royfield, if you're making the podcast. a blooper reel for this season. <laughs> oh, my God. Resume the podcast. It was, really, just need... it was awesome watching Joe's face. When he... <laughs> Pardon me. I'm going to I'm gonna come back during my audio clip playing. I've just got to go and actually wet myself from laughing at just how much you <laughs> fucked that up, Shannon. Jesus Christ. <laughs> you, you Sorry, how do I me. pronounce it again, Royfield? Ligier. Once Joe's done pissing himself, I'm going to kill myself. Ligier. Not, Ligier. Not, Ligion, <clears throat> not, not Legionnaires. Ligier. <laughs> <laughs> Leave her alone. Oh, no, Leave he's just alone. glad that someone has worse French than he does. Oh, putain. Right. My, my, my I'm French. right. I'm, I'm going to do this again now. Okay. Okay. All right. When you're ready. Okay. (laughs) Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.